DiscerningHearts.com presents Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, especially patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He is executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He's the author or editor of more than 50 books, Villains of the Early Church, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. All right, we're going to talk about a guy. Let's not confuse him with a good guy named Valentine. This is Valentinus. Yeah, that, I think that's why we usually keep the uh, the Latin ending on his name, because St. Valentine, the one we celebrate February 14th, would have had the same name. We keep the Latin ending so that we distinguish this bad guy from the good guy. Yeah, a villain. What's <laughs> the deal with that? He has something very important to teach us, but it's like one of those things that we should know it, but not accept it. <laughs> right, and uh, and he was something of a celebrity in his time. We're talking here about the 100s, so we're talking about very early in church history. You know, according to some of the church fathers, Valentinus was someone who who got passed over for church office. You know, he thought that he was the smartest guy in every room, and he was just going to coast his way to the office of bishop. And when he didn't get that promotion, well, he set about starting up his own kind of church. And it was an elitist church. It was a parasitic church. He was going after the smart set, or, or at least pseudo-intellectuals, people who wanted to appear smart. And he was going after people with money, you know, so that he could make a little bit of, uh, a bit of cash on this religion business. And he had a few basic doctrines. He said, you know, that, yeah, the gospel's out there and everybody knows about it, but there's a secret teaching that's only revealed to a few. Uh, that's the first principle. The second is that the incarnation did not mean that God took on messy human flesh in a real way. No, that didn't happen, because Valentinus taught that all matter is evil. Mm. And then the third principle is that, hey, we're a lot smarter than you. Trust me on this. I'm smarter than you. And so he really did appeal to the base desire of people to be better than their neighbors, and, and also to kind of show off that they, were, that they were the more important Christians out there. See, this is how these things take off, Mike. They usually offer something very attractive, mm -hmm. above and beyond what seems to be offered in the Christian faith. Am I wrong on that? No, I mean, that's that's it. You know, he wanted people to feel like they were belonging to an elite club, a country club, and that does appeal to a lot of a lot of people. And so he set up a, a little Christian country club where they could have their soirees and they can they could talk about Christianity in ways that were safe, because let's face it. It was a dangerous thing to be an ordinary Christian in this time. There was real risk involved. 
the practice of Christianity was a crime, and it was a capital crime. The punishment was death. And so here's Valentinus saying, you know what, you don't have to worry about all of that stuff, all of that danger. We're just going to have our private little meetings. We're not going to worry too much about evangelizing the outside. Valentinus was not putting his neck on the line by going out and evangelizing the pagans. He was a parasite on the body of Christ. He was trying to draw off people who were Christians, especially wealthy Christians, and draw them into his private club. And so it's interesting. Modern scholars have done the research, uh, you know, that we, since we have these documents that tell us about Valentinus, he had some degree of success, and tell us where he had his meetings and who his disciples were, we can see that a lot of them lived in the wealthiest part of Rome. So that's, it seems to be his M.O. He was going to make Christianity safe for the wealthy and those who wanted to, to appear to have great intelligence. Hmm. Of course, when I said that we need to know this and recognize kind of what his teachings are, because we will encounter it even today, and we're talking about Gnosticism, and it's been around even before Christ. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Gnosticism has been around for a long time because, because there's always been this temptation to belong to an elite group that didn't include the great unwashed, to just belong to your social set. You know, St. Paul was dealing with that, obviously, when he chastised the Corinthian church, because the wealthy didn't want to have Eucharist with the poor. They didn't want to share what they had these agape meals, and they also were concerned about what he calls gnosis, knowledge, that they wanted to put on airs about the great learning they had, about the knowledge they had acquired, because they felt that it made them superior. And Gnosticism is a perennial temptation, and we see it, it manifesting in, in, every, in every age, you know, even in our own age with a lot of New Age Christianity making its appearance, offering esoteric knowledge that combines uh, wisdom traditions from different religions, and really, really all it is is cultural appropriation, and then a, a misconstruing of it in Western ways. It has the same kind of silliness in modern times that it had in ancient times. It was so silly, even back then, that Irenaeus after directly refuting it, then just kind of wrote a parody of it, a lampoon of it, because he thought it was so ridiculous. The thing about men like Valentinus and those who will follow them, I have to believe, Mike, that they sincerely believe they're right. They believe that what they know really is, for them, truth. And that is why they can they preach it so strongly. Actually, it's a seduction of their own that has been accomplished through their own intellect. Am I being too overly generalizing in that? Well, I think pride is always a danger, you know, that uh, everybody likes to have attention, or most people do anyway. They like to have attention. They like to be praised. They want to believe they're the smartest one in the room, and they can come to believe their own PR. Hmm. And that is that is a real danger. And it it, it was a danger then. Boy, I, I I don't know if he believed all this or not. I don't know whether he believed he had a revelation or or he was he was in it for the prestige and the cash. It's hard to say, and it, and and we can't judge his interior dispositions because we don't know them, frankly. Mm -hmm. 
But you know, we do gain a lot when we hold ourselves accountable to some authority outside ourselves. When we hold ourselves accountable to the apostolic tradition, which is carefully preserved in the historical record. Valentinus got away with his new doctrine by saying he was above all that, that there was a secret tradition that only he knew about, he and other elites. And there wasn't really a historical record for that because you don't keep historical records of such secrets. I don't know if he really believed that or not, but it seems like a scam to me. You know, he's saying, trust me on this, and I don't really trust him. You know, we, we need to have these checks on our on our base tendencies. We need to have the check of apostolic tradition. We need to have the check of a magisterium that says, hey, look, this what you're saying right now does not square what has been said always and everywhere and by everyone who's claimed the name of Christian. The reason I emphasize that he may have believed sincerely in his followers and what they were teaching is that even today we see the Valentinus type of approach to things where they may call them the unwashed. I heard a theologian say that once to, about the faithful in the pews, us. They said we were the unwashed. Wow. And that Sometimes because they've studied, because they know, and because they are a part of the elite, they have the prestige, it seems, that they know better than we do. You know, in a a society, in a culture that you feel, I don't belong somewhere, I want to belong in that, (laughs) you know? And Mm -hmm. that's, that's the danger, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, they may have their degrees from institutions that that tell them they have done these studies and even done them with excellence. But those institutions are not the church. Very smart people have been very wrong all through history in every generation. Very smart people have been very wrong. And yet, illiterate peasants have been great saints. You want to be on the side of those who are great saints. Now, on the other hand, there have been great intellectuals who have been great saints. You know, people like Augustine and Aquinas, they obviously had had great minds that were trained at the best universities. They were the smartest one in the room wherever they went. And yeah, you know, it's it's something if you could if you can find a master like that, but it's better to be taught by uh, again, an illiterate saint like St. Benedict Labre than by a very smart heretic like Valentinus. Okay, the, the key to this, the Valentinus, we know he's wrong because of this, this secret nature of the gospel even contradicts what St. Paul will t- tell us, that this is all very simple. The message of the good news is a simple one, it, and it can be measured up against the life of the virtues, can it? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, the the church at large was talking about continuity between the Old Testament and the New. They were talking about something that was true on every level. Yes, yes, the early fathers believed there was an allegorical meaning to Scripture, and they believed that God built that into the Scripture. But history, the story, was the first. That literal meaning of the narrative text was the first meaning that was true, and all of the other meanings were built upon that. We don't have one level of meaning canceling out the other, one level of meaning contradicting the other. No, it's it's like this great symphony. All of the levels of meaning in Holy Scripture were in harmony, were consonant with one another. 
What I love about this story about Valentinus is that we have, can we say, a hero, Tertullian, who oh, yeah. says it like it is. And, and I think the, one of the most compelling lines in here, as odd as it may sound, as he says, watch out. He's not targeting the Gentiles. He's not evangelizing going after the Gentiles. He's going after the body. Yes, yes. Uh, Tertullian uh, could be a hothead, but, but you know what's interesting is that he does show a certain degree of respect for Valentinus. He puts Valentinus's credentials out there. He said that he had some genuine intellectual achievement, that he had accomplished some things, but he also saw that that made his errors in doctrine all the more dangerous, all the more insidious. So yes, it, it's, it's very helpful for us to have these detailed examinations of the Valentinian doctrine from a time uh, when it was fresh, when it was new, because we have not only Tertullian, we also have Irenaeus, who spent a lot of time examining the doctrine of Valentinus. And then we have later fathers as well. So, so he is someone who was living in the middle of the second century, a very early heretic in the church, um, and uh, and very influential in many places, uh, and uh, and and yet he's so well attested from the very beginning. We also have some of his writings. Some of them were were discovered quite recently in the Nag Hammadi discovery in Egypt. So we can know quite a bit about Valentinus. And and sure enough, you know what we find in Tertullian, what we find in Irenaeus, really does square with what we find in the originals in Valentinus himself. We'll return to the villains of the early church and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life-transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time, looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. We now return to The Villains of the Early Church, and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Again, for people who are joining us mid-conversation, we're not talking about St. Valentine. No, <laughs> he's a hero. Right. But Valentinus, not so much. We see elements of his particular type of teaching, you know, the Gnosticism. And again, I'm in danger of oversimplifying it, but it's this idea that somehow matter is bad, and in mm-hmm. essence, the body is not good then, it's bad, and that it's all about the soul. And that it was really contradicted, especially in our lifetime, Mike, by the teachings of John Paul II. Uh, that's right. You know, and it's it, this is always going to be a temptation, I think, because we know that our nature is fallen, and we know that it's difficult to discipline our flesh and the desires of the flesh. Also, you know, we look upon our flesh and its and our aging as reminders of mortality, and we don't find that pleasant. You know, the, the Gnostics want to do away with all of that unpleasantness. They want to say that the flesh is really unimportant, and let's just concentrate on the spirit. All of these good things, and, and start to live in the spirit right now. You know, unfortunately, when you make this division, you run into all kinds of uh, problems, even for ordinary life. Well, what do you what do you do with the flesh then? Do you starve yourself to death or do you overindulge? Because both become temptations. If the flesh doesn't matter, well, we should say on the one hand, well, maybe I'll do away with the flesh then. Some some ancient Gnostics promoted suicide as a result. Okay, they said that was a really good thing. On the other extreme, you find ancient Gnostics who said, well, the flesh doesn't really matter, so you can sin in any way you wish. And they even promoted this idea of breaking all the commandments just to shake your fist at the God of the Old Testament, who was not the real God, the God of light, the God they worship, the God they had come to through knowledge revealed to them by teachers like Valentinus. You know, so you have this misunderstanding 
of the body, you know, as something that's totally corrupt. And so, you know, you're presented with these different kinds of temptations. You're not doing away with temptations. You're just, you're just facing new ones. See, I think this goes to the heart of a, a real challenge for us as we profess our creed. I, we do it at least every Sunday, the Apostles' Creed. We, we pray the rosary in so many other areas. But in essence, we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that means us. And right. that is a real challenge. It's much easier to believe that, okay, I have a soul and my soul goes on. But as you said, this corrupt mortal body, I don't want to drag this around forever. That's right. That's right. We, we have this belief that's explicit in the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the flesh. It's been part of our creeds from very early on, and it was placed in our creeds precisely in opposition to the doctrine of the Gnostics. You know, that's why we have this. That's why we profess this, even today. Because, as I said, that was something that was threatening the early church that th at the time the creeds were hammered out, but it's something that still threatens the church today. What do we do with this component of our persons, this component that frustrates us so much? That's sometimes where that quote-unquote intellectualism can get a hook in the faithful, and you know, in you and me and everywhere else, because it doesn't seem reasonable. Wait a minute. But then again, a Savior raising from the dead yes. doesn't necessarily yes. make a lot of sense to some. Yeah, and a Savior taking on flesh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is such a radical and scandalous idea, especially to these, uh, these early heretics we're talking about, because they want to convince you that Jesus did not really take on flesh, but rather he just appeared to have flesh. He appeared to suffer. He appeared to die and bleed. No, that's not the Christian way. It never has been. And if you believe that, then you're believing a different gospel. You're, you're taking on a different religion. You're not acting in a Christian way. Suffering is at the heart of it, and it's the suffering that saved us. The Gnostics don't want us to believe that. They want us to believe something very different. They want us to believe something that's untrue. Well, it, the slippery slope of this type of thinking, and again, the reason why looking at the life of, of Valentinus and, and even these other villains and, and what we can learn from them is that in this, this Gnostic approach to the identification of our bodies or that matter doesn't matter, as it were, Mm -hmm. that then you can live in a duality, that somehow that my soul is separate. So whatever happens in the flesh or what happens to the flesh is not necessarily something I have to be reverential about. <laughs> and then it leads to all kinds of messiness. If I can separate that out, then I can maybe do things to the body or to yeah. other person's bodies. Yeah. On, on the one hand, it, it can lead to wantonness or on the other hand, to priggishness. But in either case, you're not going to be a happy person, not in this life, and uh, Lord have mercy, maybe not later on either, you know, if, if you don't repent. So what happened to Valentinus and the Valentinians? Well, you know, they kind of vanished, and I'll tell you why. Because when you have a religion like this that has no authority, but places all the emphasis on revelations that are private and given to one teacher, well, you know, there comes another teacher. 
Mm. And his revelation's a little bit different. And then you have another teacher, and his revelation's more different still. And you have all of these teachers proliferating with their variations on the teaching, and they're all in competition with one another. So after a while, they kind of cancel each other out, and they lose all credibility. So Valentinian Christianity really did flame out very quickly because it's impossible to sustain uh, you know, if you have one teacher who's very charismatic, it might last as long as he's alive because he'll draw people to himself just with his charm, just with his rhetoric. But once that teacher dies, it kind of flames out because, mm -hmm. uh, because again, you have no authority and it, everything's based on secrets. And you have a whole lot of people out who are willing to say, hey, my secret's better than his secret. And, and I think it's the one you want to know. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, I think for some Catholics that we have to be careful because we think, well, that's a Protestant type of evangelical experience. Ooh, no, we've seen that in the Catholic Church. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, this temptation to belong to a little secret club, you know, that uh, I'm not part of the parish. You know, the parish isn't my real home. My home is this little secret club that I have, this elite group uh, where we meet and we kind of laugh at everybody else. We look down on them. Uh, that's always a temptation. It's always been a temptation. You know, I believe it always will be until, until the end. You know, we have to plug into the church where we find it, and we have to, we have to see the church as here comes everybody, in the words of James Joyce, uh, the great gathering of saints and sinners and people of all different kinds. Sometimes the people we'd least like to hang around with, but there they are, and we're all together, and we all we all share fellowship and share communion in the church. It's uh, quite an important lesson. Open, you know, those who have eyes to see should see; those with ears mm -hmm. to hear. And, and yes. that, it's everybody. Everybody, open your eyes. Everybody, open your ears. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. This is the Catholic idea, mm. and it's and it's utterly opposed to the Gnostic idea. Oh. Great. I can't wait till our next conversation. Mike Aquilina, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Chris. You've been listening to Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina.